Hey, it's Marissa, and you're listening to From Boise. Today's story is about a place that you know, and it's a place that you've probably also taken for granted. When I first started working on this story, I came to that exact realization. In the summer of 2022, a From Boise reader, Noel, wrote me and told me about a book they had read that they thought that I might like. It's called Pathway of Dreams, Building the Boise Greenbelt by David Proctor. And this book goes into the history of the Boise River and the creation of the Boise Greenbelt. You can find it at the Boise Library if you're interested in checking it out. Pun intended. Anyway, so I started working on the story and I interviewed Travis Jeffries, who's the history programs manager for the Department of Arts and History at the city. And I had just about finished up the story when Amanda Patchen, who's a fabulous local writer that we often work with, emailed me with a story that she had written about the history of the Boise River. So we had written the same story at the same time without talking to each other. And hers was great, of course, so I just went ahead and combined our stories together. And this is it. Enjoy. The History of the Boise River. Written by me, Marissa, and Amanda Patchen. Boise, like many cities, is spread along a river valley. Our river, which shares our city name, is sparkling, cold, and clean. It's lined with a lovely walking path, numerous shady parks, and thousands of tall trees. Blackberry brambles spill down its banks, and fly fishermen can often be seen casting from the middle of its cool current on hot summer days. Floating on rafts and tubes down the Boise River has become a summer rite of passage. Observing the Boise River's beauty, most would assume that this pristine natural feature has always been the aesthetic heart of our city. But it hasn't. The early years. The Boise River creates a fertile valley between mountains to the north and a dry desert to the south. Long before settlement, the river was vital to indigenous tribes for hunting, fishing, harvesting, and gathering. It was also an important wintering camp thanks to the valley's mild winter climate. Travis Jeffries, history programs manager for the City of Boise Department of Arts and History, tells us, quote, It's been documented that there were these major trade rendezvous in the Boise Valley right along the river that drew not only the Shoshone, Bannock, and Northern Paiute, but other tribes as well, like the Nez Pierce. End quote. Fur trappers with the Pacific Fur Company expedition arrived in the Snake River Valley in the early 1800s, and the Boise River and surrounding rivers became important landmarks. By 1813, trapper John Reed had started a fur trading post on the lower Boise River, which led to the river being called Reed's River. In early 1814, local Bannock Indians wiped out the post completely. Immigrants traveling the Oregon Trail began to arrive in the area around the 1840s, finding a refuge of shade and water along the river after weeks of traveling through the high desert. Gold fever then hit the area in 1862, and Fort Boise was established in the summer of 1863, which brought an influx of people to the valley seeking a new beginning. Through the early 1900s, settlement remained north of the river in an attempt to avoid seasonal floods. But in an effort to control the floods and create a means for irrigation, early city leaders opted to dam the river. The dams were constructed in the following order. Diversion Dam in 1908, Arrow Rock Dam in 1915, Anderson Ranch Dam in 1950, and Lucky Peak Dam in 1955. While flooding had eased and irrigation helped develop previously unlivable areas of the valley, like the Boise Bench, the river was still not viewed with much importance. Instead, it was a waste disposal system. Through the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s, the Boise River was a polluted, cluttered mess. People used the river to dispose of garbage, sewage, and animal waste. Up until the mid-1960s, there were three slaughterhouses that were dumping waste directly into the flowing water. Ew. The Boise River was quite literally a trash river. And it wasn't the only one. Fire on the river. On the scale of polluted rivers, the Boise River actually didn't rank very high. In 1969, the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio, caught on fire. 
And believe it or not, it wasn't the first time. On at least six other occasions in the previous hundred years, the industrial sludge that polluted the Cuyahoga River had burned. Fortunately for us, the 1969 fire actually motivated the United States to clean up its water, including the Boise River. Time magazine ran a photo of the Cuyahoga burning and that publicity, combined with the public consciousness raised by Rachel Carson's novel Silent Spring, prompted the passing of the Clean Water Act of 1972. It wasn't just the law, though. Communities around the U.S., including Boise, were beginning to recognize that our rivers could not be taken for granted. River after river was first protected from ongoing pollution, then thoroughly cleaned and rehabilitated. Junk, metal, slag, glass, and the like had to be dredged out, picked up, and carted away. Sources of toxic chemicals had to be identified and stopped. Sewage began to be processed in treatment plants and watersheds protected from farm waste. Travis tells us, quote, it took decades for people to really recognize the river as something that we want to recreate in and use and enjoy its beauty like we do now. For a long time, there weren't even fish in the Boise River because it was so highly polluted, end quote. All that changed with Boise City Councilman Bill Onweiler. A path toward change. Onweiler got inspired to create a walking path along both the north and south sides of the river. He felt that the river could become the wellspring of urban renewal in a city that was being eaten alive by its suburbs. He shot a home movie that traced the river from a helicopter, an overlaid narration describing his vision for what eventually became our beloved Boise Greenbelt. Travis told us, quote, It just kind of opened people's eyes to the opportunity that was sitting there in front of them, but nobody had really articulated, end quote. The effort to build the walking path required cleaning up the banks of the Boise River, which were littered with piles and piles of all manners of trash. According to Onweiler in an interview for Boise State's Blue Review, Boiseans in the 1970s were so oblivious to the fact that a river flowed through their town and felt mostly indifferent to it, which makes sense, given its polluted state and relative inaccessibility. He showed his video to people all throughout the valley again and again, eventually gaining the community support for the ambitious Greenbelt Project. Between the burning of the Cuyahoga, which prompted our nation to reconsider its rivers, and the completion of Onweiler's vision for an accessible and beautiful path along the river, there was a lot of cleanup work to do. Although direct dumping of trash and sewage had been banned in 1949, there was still considerable illicit trash dumping for many years after, and the refuse of several generations had not been dealt with. The cleanup of the banks where old cars rusted and piles of bricks, cans, wire, and other refuse accumulated took significant time. So far as we can find, the Boise was never a burning river. However, there are stories of foam piling up as food byproducts and detergents were directly discharged into the river. It seems revolting to imagine the oils and rotten food, yellow foam and slimy sludges, even raw sewage floating on the water. But we have the capacity to be revolted by such imaginings precisely because, in a single generation, people rejected the careless use of our river as dumping ground and began to consider its potential for beauty creating the Boise Greenbelt. The first phase of the Greenbelt was opened in 1975. The original 12 planned miles have become a total of over 40 as the path stretches from Lucky Peak to Eagle. While the Greenbelt helped transform the Boise River into the beautiful amenity and recreation corridor that it is today, it wasn't exactly met with unanimous support, but what municipal project is, you know? Many thought the project was a path to nowhere, and in a way, it was, but it also wasn't. Julia Davis Park had been around since 1907, and Ann Morrison Park had been around since 1959, yet the two parks weren't formally connected. Travis told us, quote, These major municipal parks have been around for a very long time and situated along the river, 
So it made sense for people, pedestrians, bicyclists to be able to connect those with this kind of thoroughfare. The infrastructure was already there. End quote. Today, the Greenbelt connects 10 different parks, known as the Ribbon of Jewels. Boise State University sprawls along the Boise River's southern shore. Zoo Boise, the Boise Art Museum, the Idaho State Historical Museum, Idaho Black History Museum, and Discovery Center of Idaho are just steps from the river on its northern shore. Over in Whitewater Park in Garden City, the river has been manipulated to create an urban surfing wave. And if you head the other way towards Lucky Peak, you can take in the natural habitat that has flourished along the Boise River while strolling the Bethany Church Trail. Walking or riding the Greenbelt is always a top suggestion to visitors and newcomers. Floating the river is on everyone's summer bucket list. Anglers find midday peace throwing a few lines on their lunch break. Who would have thought that 60 years ago, some people didn't even know Boise had a river? or that it was a legit trash river. We are all forever in debt to those who saw potential through pollution and work to create the incredible Boise River that we know and love today. Thanks for listening. With love from Boise, Marissa.